horrific, disgusting, upsetting, very upsetting for all of us. Behind gates. We stand together united against the racist, anti-Semitic messages. Off the courts. I didn't mean to cause any harm. Fueled by celebrity and social media. This is not the community that we want to live in. Growing signs of hate hit home. Why not? It's so cooked, it, it's burnt. Backlash to moving the boundary. Motion passes eight to four. Votes flip, developers win. What's at stake? It's either the economy or the environment. And I think that this application, as it exists today, looks at both of those things. Election day nears. For us as citizens, we gotta go out there, we gotta vote. Last day to vote early. Statehouse seats on the line. The sound you hear is this mega guy leaving. Go out and vote and do your civic duty. The big news of the week, live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. As we come on the air today, the last day of early voting is underway in the fight for Florida. The parties and the candidates are ramping up the last minute push to the polls. And looking at the turnout numbers, it looks like voters are responding. Local 10 News reporter Trent Kelly is live there at the North Dade Regional Library in Miami Gardens. Trent, how's business up there? A lot of voters? You know, Michael and Glenna, for a midterm cycle, things are relatively busy out here. Here at the North Dade Regional Library, we have seen a steady stream of voters trickling in for, as you mentioned, the last and final day of early voting in Broward and Miami-Dade counties. Now, I just checked the numbers, and here in Miami-Dade alone, about 440,000 people have already cast their ballots early. When you break down that number, about half of those were cast via mail-in ballot, the other half coming from those who voted early and in person. Now, that in person early voting number likely to get a decent sized boost today as the traditional souls to the polls events take place that of course encourages minority voters to vote early following church services one other thing i want to note here for you is that already here in miami-dade county the number of republicans who have voted early is already surpassing the number of democrats that have voted early that of course a big change from just two years ago when democrats maintained a slight edge heading into election day just one more sign of what some consider to be Miami-Dade's further move to the right and another reason why so many statewide Republicans are so confident heading into Election Day. We're reporting live from Miami Gardens. I'm Trent Kelly. Michael Glenna, back over to you. Trent, thanks so much. All right, today we have several candidates with us. The race for the State House and the newly drawn District 100 is one of the most interesting on the ballot. The race has become the most expensive in Broward County to represent the coastal neighborhoods from Port Everglades to the North County line. Two-term incumbent Republican Chip Lamarca is being challenged again by Democrat Linda Thompson-Gonzalez, a former U.S. Diplomat and also Assistant Inspector General for the State Department. It is so great to have you both here. Not so much a debate, more like a, a nice conversation for viewers. <laughs> Chip, Linda, welcome. We are we are so glad you are here. Uh, Chip Lamarca, let me begin with you. You are the incumbent. You are really a well-known quantity. You've been a lighthouse point commissioner. Uh, you're in the state legislature for a couple of terms. Uh, you are the only Republican whose district takes you know, within Broward County, strictly within Broward County, but some say, maybe the Miami, the Sun Sentinel editorial board says, you have become out of step with your district. Are you or are you in sync? 
Uh, well, listen, I've, I've been out of early voting and, and meeting voters, and I would say that uh, it's disappointing. It seems like the editorial board of the Sun Sentinel has been, become a paid political advertisement for my opponent. There could be nothing further from the truth. I'm still connecting with voters, talking to them. They know I was their county commissioner. I looked out for them. They know I was their city commissioner, and they know that in Tallahassee, I look out for them. You know, Linda, this is a redistricted district. You both have run against each other. And now because of redistricting, it's so split down the middle, slightly more Democrat than it was. Um, you know, Chip LaMarca has been representing constituents by voting in some cases against his own party. Why do you think you might do a better job? Well, we know this district is really a microcosm of Florida. It's one-third Republican, one-third Democrat, and one-third NPA. And the numbers on registration have been up and down. But I'm a problem solver. I'm not a career politician. Um, as you mentioned, I've been an inspector general, a small business attorney. So I'm really running to solve people's problems, to get out there and help people uh, have better lives, address the affordability crisis. Can I just ask you that question more time? Why do you think you do a better job? <laughs> Um, because I'm, I'm focused, I have 30 years of experience focusing on making our government work better for people. Um, we have an incumbent in Tallahassee who has not addressed our, our insurance, our affordability crisis. The one number I'm really focused on today is the fact that 92% of our Broward residents can no longer afford, cannot afford their housing. They've not had any relief on their insurance. Um, you know, we have our insurance uh, premiums are skyrocketing. So we need someone who's going to go to Tallahassee and work for our voters to resolve these yeah. problems. They've not been resolved in the last four years of his incumbency. Thank yeah. you. Chip, Chip LaMarca, you have earned a reputation as a moderate Republican, somebody, as Glenna said, who is willing sometimes to vote against your party. But if you are sent back to Tallahassee, there's almost no way that you can be effective and moderate because very conservative Republicans are in charge of the legislature. And it looks, in fact, like uh, Ron DeSantis will be reelected. So how can you be moderate within that environment? Oh, I, I beg to differ. I think our incoming Speaker of the House, Paul Renner, is a man of conviction, a, a Navy man, a former prosecutor from Broward County. Um, I'll have the levity and the ability to, to uh, take the votes that I need to take, and I can actually have influence as a, a third-term representative with the uh, Speaker of the House and leadership in the in the in the House, and we'll probably have a, a good committee assignment and uh, can uh, continue to bring things back to Broward County. I think my voice—they understand how important the seat is, and they've been very involved in this race. So, Chip, you know, um, so many people this past session didn't really see how how many times people on each side of the aisle had worked together on various things because mm -hmm. sucking up all the oxygen in the room were the sort of culture war issues. And and on those, you you did vote against your own party on the parental rights, what everyone calls the don't say gay bill, which is not a don't say gay bill, but that's what it's called. But you voted mm -hmm. against that for your constituents, but you did vote for the abortion restrictions to 15 right. weeks. Take us through what, when do you decide how and when to buck your own party? Well, I think uh, on that on that issue, I'm, you, you, we had a great debate the other night, the, uh, the civil debate, and you were the moderator, and we actually had some great conversation about that particular issue. Look, that was a very, uh, uh, that was, the, the conversation around this was, was uh, very interesting. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, facts that went into it. Um, I think, uh, look, at the end of the day, I wanted to make sure abortion in the state of Florida was was safe but legal. 
and I'm never going to vote against having that access. But I also understand uh, what the limits are, and, and, and my vote is on the table. Uh, we have yet to hear from my opponent on anything of uh, term of abortion. But your, your question is really about how I decide to vote, and that's I vote for the people. I'm in the people's house. Representatives represent the people. Uh, I, I listen to people on the left, the right, and in the middle. And, and quite honestly, we've heard a lot of people that have come to the polls and said, you know, I really appreciate you uh, look out, looking out for teachers and not arming teachers. You know, that's another yeah. vote. Or standing with, you know, particular unions that uh, keep us safe, like first responders. Uh, I think it's it's really, look, it, it comes from being a city commissioner, a county commissioner, and knowing the, the same people that I'm representing. Yeah. I don't really look at it as, you know, when do I buck the, the party? I, I just look at the issue and, and have a lot of communication back at home, and I know how they think. Yeah, Linda Gonzalez, explain to us what is your position if you had been in the state House of Representatives this past March? How would you have voted on the bill to limit abortions to 15 weeks without exceptions for rape or incest? Basically, this bill is putting a government mandate in between a woman and her right, her decisions for her own body, her safety, her health, and her family. But I'd like to go back to the discussions that you're just having about the incumbent's record, because that's really what we need to do is for voters to hold the incumbent accountable. And you mentioned the reference to Sun Sentinel endorsement. They took a very careful look at the incumbent's record, and they mentioned that he claims to be representing the people when, in fact, his voting record tells a very different story. These are not votes that have helped people that have show a, a uh, an incumbent who was working for the people. Quite the contrary, it shows a very different picture. He puts a moderate face on very extreme positions, and the abortion ban is just one of them. Um, the banning books, there are a number of other issues here, but the abortion ban is an extreme position. Um, we need women to and their families to have the right to choose we do not have the right to impose our religious, our personal religious views on others. I'm a deeply religious person. I'm really singing in our church choir most Sundays, but I do not have the right as an elected person to impose my personal beliefs and views on the rest of others. We are a country that was founded on the notion of religious freedom. And other people have very different views on this issue, whether, you know, every situation is different. So we need to respect others' rights, everyone's religion, and do the best, the most good for the most people. This so, is an important so, issue. You have, hey, Michael, um, are we going to get an answer on how she would have voted and what the line is? Is it 15 weeks? Is it 20 weeks? I mean, she's, she I, called our, our, our bill reducing fetal and infant mortality. So we're looking out for babies. And she called it extreme, but it's, it's more liberal than Western Europe. Go ahead, I mean, Linda. How, what, how might you have voted yeah. on that on the, that bill? The Roe versus the Roe versus Wade was the appropriate response to this issue. Um, the 15-week abortion ban is wrong. We have in in this country maternal mortality rates. That's rates of death of women in, in pregnancy are among the highest in the industrialized nation. For women of color in this in Florida, these numbers are three times what they are for uh, other countries. We need to protect women. We need to protect their privacy. We need to protect our families and women's right to choose. And we do not do that by imposing a government mandate, taking away the ability of our doctors to save women's lives when they are in dangerous, precarious situations that threaten their lives. We have redoubled down women who have been raped, yeah. guilt, uh, victims of crime, of crime such as rape, incest, or human trafficking. We cannot 
double down and, okay. and submit them to crime I, again. I think, yeah, uh, Linda, I think you've made your point. Let's move on here. We have limited amount of time. Uh, Chip Lamarca, the day after Paul Pelosi, husband of the Speaker of the House, after mm -hmm. he was attacked at his home in San Francisco, you sent out a tweet and you expressed your condolences to uh, the family and to him. But then you added a, a line that said, maybe now they'll get tough on crime, theft, assault, murder, and no cash bail that has plagued a once great American city. Uh, a number of people thought the tone of that was just wrong, that you were tone deaf, as it were, <clears throat> in that situation. How do you defend that, uh, that tweet? Thank you, Mike. I'm, I'm glad you asked the question. A number of people would be a number of Democratic extremists uh, from uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz down through the folks that made these comments, and also this again, the Sun Sentinel editorial board. They actually conflated that issue with anti-Semitism, which is offensive to someone who's taken a trip to Israel with the governor and stands by the the state of Israel at all costs, no matter what the politics are. The issue about San Francisco is the same issue in Chicago, New York, Boston, once great cities who have no cash bail and they let people back out. Didn't you see that this poor woman is running in Central Park get get beat up and, and raped by someone who just got out of jail. I'm sorry if, if people can't take my genuine heartfelt uh, concern for the Speaker of the House's husband, an older Italian gentleman. He reminds me of my grandfather. Of course, nobody wants anything to happen to anybody. But why don't they get tough on crime like we are here? This is why Florida is, is succeeding. We have cops moving from New York and other yeah. states to Lake right. County, to Broward Before County. Me, Chip, I'm going to, I'm sorry, jump in here. Linda, I, sure. we need to give you a little time here to respond because you were critical of uh, Mr. Lamarca and this tweet. Why, what was wrong with it in your opinion? Violent actions, violent political speech needs to be condemned, period. I have worked around the globe fighting terrorism, fighting crime. In fact, we know that in red states, to get political here. Red states, the crime rate is much higher than it is in the blue states. So, but that is beside the point. And again, the incumbent is uh, digressing from the point here that we have political violence and it is the responsibility of every everyone, whether elected officials or not, to condemn this violence. This was a terrible well, act. Mr. The violent speech, this, yeah, this violent speech, making a political stunt, making a political point based on a, a, a tragic situation. So. You, should, um, you should both know that later on in this program, we will be addressing much more of that with the head of the Anti-Defamation League as well. Thank you so much for this little quickie conversation. <laughs> Hopefully uh, viewers got to know a little bit about how to vote, how they want to vote, and um, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. So much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, up next, district hopping to the race right next door. Broward House District 101 involves a lawyer who fights insurance companies and the owner of a construction business. We'll talk with her when we get back. wait for dates for a special session to address Florida property insurance. One of the candidates for Broward State Rep is already immersed in that crisis. Hillary Cassell is an attorney and a Democrat running in House District 101. That includes parts of Davie, Hollywood, Hallandale Beach and Dania Beach. And we understand that we have a few technical problems trying to connect with Hillary Cassell. And I think we're going to take a break and try to correct the problems. 
and we'll be back in a minute. We are back on the rails, live TV at its best. Hillary Cassell, Democrat for State Representative 101, is with us this morning. Attorney uh, specializing in helping clients with property insurance claims and now headed into a race that focuses in so many ways on property insurance. Good morning and thank you for being with us. Good morning. I apologize for the technical difficulties, but thank you so much for having me. <laughs> you are not the first and will likely not be the last. We're all friends here. It's all good. So, Hillary Cassell, what, what made you even want to run for the State House? You know, honestly, it was the amount of time that I spent in Tallahassee fighting for consumers against big insurance companies. You know, I saw that there was a lack of conversation from the consumer standpoint of what happens to people after they suffer a catastrophic loss. So I got engaged in the legislative process to make sure that reforms that were passed to get to that place of having an available, reliable, stable, dependable insurance market was there. But we got there not at the backs of consumers and everyday Floridians who pay their premiums and need their insurance companies to be there when they need them. And I wanted to bring my voice to Tallahassee. So I started through fighting for consumers through a consumer advocacy group that I founded. And at the end of the day, property insurance is complicated and there aren't a lot of legislators who have the knowledge and experience that I have having focused on this area for the last 13 right, years. Hillary, let me, let me jump in here. That is your expertise. So if you are elected, you're gonna go up there and deal in a special session that will deal st solely, strictly with property insurance. What what are you going to bring to that? What do you hope comes out of that lower premiums, lower insurance costs, certainly for Floridians? And that's the relief that we need. But we also have to get to a place where our, our insurance companies are solvent. We need competition back in the state of Florida because that's also going to provide that relief in consumers' pocketbooks. But a special session in reality isn't the answer. And we see that from what happened in May. The reality is insurance is extremely complicated and we're not really looking at the data. You know, statutorily speaking, the Office of Insurance Regulation and our CFO are supposed to provide, you know, uh, reports to our governor, speaker of the house and Senate president four months after these companies go into receivership to give us an idea of why they failed. And we haven't seen those despite the number of companies that have failed. There's a lot of reasons why these companies are failing and a special session isn't the answer. We've got to do a deep dive into the data to figure this out, to really truly solve this problem once and for all. So Hillary, to, to your point, I don't think you would have any argument from anyone that there are structural deficiencies in the Florida insurance market. But let me give you the state's view and the view of the CEO of Citizens who say that fraud is a huge a component of the spiraling costs and a component of the fraud is attorneys who take advantage of the system mm -hmm. and litigation costs and settlement costs and attorneys pay that is really buckling the system. What do you say to that as one of those attorneys? So, so listen, I, I agree that that's absolutely a part of the pro of the problem. You know, this is a large problem with lots of many, lots of pieces that have played into the disaster that we are calling our property insurance market. But that's been the sole focus in Tallahassee for reforms that have been passed for the last four years. And I also ask, where are the, where are the prosecutions for fraud? 
having been a former assistant state attorney, the resources are available that when this fraud is committed, first and foremost, charges can be brought. I, I don't think there's been 10, 10 criminal complaints in the entire state of Florida brought for this fraud. It's a great talking point, but there's real there's been no real investigation to prove this. It's just a way to point the finger back to the other side as to why we're in this crisis. There were definitely loopholes that were being taken advantage of. When you look at the 2021 reforms that were passed, a lot of those reforms dealt with those loopholes. Well, those reforms, you're not gonna see any real relief for two to three years. And we're really gonna see those reforms now as a result of Hurricane Ian, for example, lowering the time frame to report a claim. It was brought down from five years to three years to two years. Now we've got a pre-suit notification requirement that in reality, if litigation is happening now, it's all because the insurance companies are forcing it because they have the ability to stop it based on this pre-suit notification. All so right, Hillary Cassell, we, we appreciate it. Clearly, you are deep into the issue of property insurance, know it forward, backward, and that expertise is needed in Tallahassee. But thanks for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, still to come, building beyond the urban development boundary line. Miami-Dade commissioners voted to do it this week, and we're gonna talk to the commissioner whose vote made the difference. After months of deferrals, the Miami-Dade Commission voted this week to breach the environmental urban development boundary for an industrial complex. One commissioner called that an incredible land grab, but eight commissioners voted to allow this warehouse and commercial district in South Dade beyond the UDB. The supermajority vote this week came after a series of those deferrals when one commissioner who had opposed it changed her vote to yes. That commissioner is Raquel Regalado here live today with us to dive into why. Great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Commissioner Regalado, great to see you. Thank you for joining us. So the obvious Thank question to begin with, excuse me, the first question is why did you change your vote? What were the elements that made you believe that in fact uh, it's okay to build beyond the UDB down there in deep South Dade? Well, first and foremost, there's three of us that represent South Dade, and I am one of those commissioners, and we've been grappling with this issue for some time. The urban development boundary was actually established to protect ag uh, and also to prevent urban sprawl. And what we've been discussing for this application in particular is how to handle land that the Board of County Commissioners had previously decided that was in the urban expansion area. So I know that we're going to talk a little bit about the process, but it's important for folks to understand that one of the things that the Board of County Commission does is say there's the urban boundary line and then there's the area where we want folks to expand into. For me, this application, when it was first presented, was an abomination. It was enormous, uh, and it actually covered a lot of land that I believed should be preserved. At the Board of County Commissioners, we've been working with our federal and state partners for decades to preserve part of this land. But even though that's the case, 
since there hasn't been anything finalized and just a bunch of committees, in 2018, the Board of County Commissioners decided that this should be part of the urban expansion area. Um, I brought up the concept of being proactive about preservation instead of reactive, instead of waiting for the federal government to decide and find money to maybe purchase this land. What I brought to my fellow commissioners uh, and what they found interesting was the idea of developing 311 acres of this, but preserving twice that, 622 acres, most of which are environmentally endangered lands that have actually been on a list that Miami-Dade County has of land that we want to purchase since 1992. Okay, so, so let, me, let me just um, capsulize, because I, I really want to get in some other things in the tight time that we have. So, so there is good and bad, and you were weighing environmental versus development, and that's kind of the big picture here. Um, and, and I do want to talk about process a little bit, because it is no secret that developers in this county do have a hand in crafting legislation. It's not a secret. It was never really quite as public as when the team jumped up and stopped what would have been a no vote to get a deferral instead. So so my question to you is, how does the public now trust? And, and for the record, no shade to this project, no shade to the process, just it is what it is. How do you get the public to really trust that the government is really doing the work of the people and not of the developers? Well, I think that there's been a lot mentioned about the process and we definitely as a board of county commissioners have to sit and discuss the entire process. We are going to be discussing in my committee on Thursday possible changes to the deferral as a result of what occurred with this application. But just so that folks understand, you know, and I said this at several meetings, uh, this is something that I've said throughout this entire process with this application in particular, if the Board of County Commissioners does not want to entertain applications on moving the urban development boundary, we should vote on a moratorium and no one has wanted to do that. We actually have three more applications that are already in queue and one that was sent you know, to the state of Florida to return to us. So I think it's important for people to understand that the way that the process is set up right now, folks uh, have to listen to the Board of County Commissioners, to the public, and they have the ability to change their application. And this application changed a lot. And one of the things that I said in our one of our last meetings was, I would only agree to a deferral if we had public comment again, because it was a completely different application than what was originally presented, and we were able to hear from the public again. But now we have a new commission. I mean, in, in two weeks, we're gonna have yeah. a brand new set of people, and I think we have to sit down and really look at this process, what we want to do with the urban development boundary, because right now we're talking about the environmental piece, and I have added that conversation to this process, but historically that's not what it's about. It's been about ag and it's been about sprawl, and, and I think sprawl has already happened, and agriculture is in a very difficult situation right now and has really changed. So there's a lot of moving parts to it, but we also have the issue of the applications that come in cycle now in 2023, and how much of the process can we change while those yeah. applications come before the board? We, we, we understand. And, you know, to your credit, you got the developer to agree to donate two environmentally acres of environmentally sensitive land of the county for every acre that was approved. So, you know, good on you for that. But, you know, the, uh, the criticism of the project need not tell you, you know, a chapter and verse, is that this is low-line, flood-prone uh, land, it's farmland, and that, you know, developing it even in a 
ecologically sensitive way, you know, might jeopardize the environmental, the uh, Everglades redevelopment uh, protection plan that the feds have got going. So what is your response to that? Well, I mean, the feds have been considering this land and other land for decades, and the health of the Everglades and Biscayne Bay is a priority for all of us, which is why I think it's important to change the county's reactive, let's hope that the feds do this 10 years from now and actually safeguard this land right now. 622 acres may not sound like a lot, but it is the largest preservation that Miami-Dade County is going to do in this type of application. I mean, we we manage over 20,000 acres of environmentally endangered lands, but we have a wish list of another 38,000 acres. And these lands have been on this wish list since I was in high school. So I, it is it is a balance. And I think that the fact that, you know, they brought up the ag piece, and I have been very critical of the ag argument in this particular case, because this land has saltwater intrusion, which is why we have been considering it for preservation. And it has very little utility for ag. And the folks that are farming it are telling us that it's difficult, if not impossible, to farm it. So, and one thing that I think is important for folks to understand on the ag piece, because what I've said has been taken out of context, you know, because some commissioners really focused on the ag piece, we passed an ordinance in Miami-Dade County so that you and I and Glenna, you know, cannot use pesticides during the rainy seasons because the Biscayne Bay report says that pesticides are in part, you know, what's creating the algae that is destroying the bay. But ag cannot, you know, abide by that because we cannot regulate them. And that's the excuse that they use. And what I have said is just because the state preempts us doesn't mean that our ag partners can't do the right thing. Yeah. Agriculture is changing and, and we can't protect an area that is, is pushing pesticides. Ra Raquel, we are out of time. Raquel's a broadcaster. <laughs> she knows what that means. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for those insights. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much, Commissioner. Right, Appreciate it. All right, coming up, hate in South Florida. Weston has been the scene of a anti-Semitic incident. A couple, in fact, we're going to talk about it. This weekend, Weston residents woke up to find a children's playground covered with these anti-Semitic and racist graffiti. And it wasn't the first time city leaders denounced the hate and a hunt began for those responsible. And among the leaders speaking out immediately and forcefully, Weston Mayor Margaret Brown and Rabbi Adam Watstein both here with us live today. Mayor, Rabbi, good to have you. Great to Thank see you. Thank you for having us. Uh, Thank you for inviting us to talk about this important issue. Thank you. Well, it, it is important. And Madam Mayor, let me ask you, I, I know Weston. I have friends who live there. It's a lovely community, blended community. People from all over the world have come there uh, and people of all faiths who live there. And suddenly, not that it's immune to racism and anti-Semitism, but then, you know, you see these terrible uh, the swastika and other anti-Semitic graffiti uh, in your children's playground. What did you think when you saw this? Well, I, I, this is the second time as it in fact happened, and I can't say with without question, it was just devastating, um, horrific. My heart broke for our uh, community of Jewish faith. We immediately convened our group of rabbis, of which um, Rabbi Watstein is one of three. We have Rabbi Marcy Block and Rabbi Spalter as well. And we immediately put our heads together and in a um, effort of, you know, our whole 
religious leadership, we brought everybody together to talk about what we wanted to do and put forth a unified front suggesting that we will not tolerate this, we will denounce it, and we condemn this type of behavior. So I think that's the first steps. Obviously, the second steps are um, our BSO Weston office and Chief Cavallari and identifying ways in trying to identify the individual or individuals responsible. We have, are in there, fact, are they, uh, are, excuse me, are they making oh, any progress in finding well, whoever a, is responsible? We are getting several tips through the Crime Stoppers, and people can call up and uh, give anonymous tips or identify themselves. We have started to receive tips. I cannot go into the details of what we are doing specifically in trying to identify this individual or sure. individuals, but we are treating this very seriously. I do know I live in Weston Hills myself where the event took place, where the events have taken place. And the Crime Stopper um, bus is going around so that people can see this. And we're hoping that whomever it is or if somebody knows something, says something, and we can help identify this individual. So, Rabbi, all good people are going to be standing up and standing with you. Um, the good people that we're talking about are not the ones who are doing this. And so because hate speech that we've been seeing and a rise in hate speech, which we will talk about with the head of ADL Florida right after you, um, the crime here is more like graffiti or vandalism, is it not? And, and how do you deal with people who will do this in their own gated community, presumably, um, and not be one of those good people listening to people who stand up and speak out against it? So I think it's important to recognize that the, the type of anti-Semitism that we're seeing and racism for that matter that we're seeing in our community um, is a primitive, unsophisticated uh, anti-Semitism um, wrapped in the swastika, which of course bears the historical memory of six million Jews that were murdered in the Holocaust. Um, anti-Semitism is a virus um, that morphs and changes depending upon who it is that professes these type of hateful remarks. Um, the Holocaust and anti-Semitic tropes like the swastika always elicit incredible responses. And to the credit of our leadership, uh, Mayor Peggy Brown, and of course, our city manager, Don Decker, and all of the clergy that joined us, um, it is collectively universal to stand up and speak out against the swastika. Um, but when you're dealing with different forms of anti-Semitism, like what we're seeing from, for example, Kyrie Irving, which are cloaked in sophisticated language uh, and academic uh, documentary, um, it's a little bit harder. And so that also bears worrying for my community. Yeah. Well, Rabbi, give us some kind of um, pragmatic steps people can take. I mean, clearly educating young kids mm -hmm. about the Holocaust and the history of six million Jews being slaughtered uh, in Nazi Germany. Uh, I know that student awareness days staged by the Holocaust Documentation Education Center in Dania Beach. You know, survivors meet with these young high school and middle school kids, and it really does change their lives. I mean, that's the kind of thing we need, isn't it? Well, to an extent, I agree. Again, uh, anti-Semitism has many forms. Uh, 
to the communist, a Jew is a capitalist. To a capitalist, a Jew is a communist. Uh, to somebody who draws a swastika uh, on a driveway or in a playground, uh, a Jew is not a white person. A Jew is a separate race that needs to be exterminated. Um, the real education comes when you have somebody like Kyrie Irving, uh, who's professing something entirely different, which is that uh, the Jew is nothing more than a white colonialist um, who is conspiring to manipulate the world for his or her own gain. Um, that type of education um, isn't found necessarily in the Holocaust Museum. And so when you have these different forms of anti-Semitism um, that are emerging simultaneously, um, I think that education, of course, is important. Holocaust Museum visits, of course, are important. Um, but having people who are hearing um, these unbelievable untruths from famous people, I think that we need to have some pretty significant education outside of the Jewish community um, to make sure that those statements are condemned and uh, proper education emerges. Right. Rabbi Watstein and Mayor Brown, thank you. We will keep thank in touch you. with you and follow what transpires in Weston. Thanks thank very you much. Again. Well, the problem is not just here at home. Deputy Director of the Anti-Defamation League of Florida is going to join us next with some perspective on anti-Semitism and hate speech. The disturbing surge in anti-Semitism that we're seeing is a top priority for the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL has issued a report recently called Hate in the Sunshine State, documenting an increasing presence of white supremacist groups. Lonnie Wilk is Senior Associate, Regional Director of the ADL Florida, and great to have you. Lonnie, why here and why now? Good morning, and it's very uh, concerning the findings that we found in this report, uh, the, the concerns that we uh, expressed um, were extremely distressing. We found that we had a 71% increase in extremist-related incidents in the state of Florida. Uh, we found more than 400 white supremacist propaganda incidents in the state of Florida. But, we, but why here and why now? What is it about this time and place that that's happening? I think one of the key factors and one of the key recommendations uh, coming out of this report is that we need leaders, political leaders, cultural leaders, community leaders to speak up strongly always when there is anti-Semitism or any form of bigotry. Uh, and the findings that we found in this report clearly demonstrate that in our state, uh, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Uh, Lonnie, as we know, as you certainly know, in the wake of these ugly comments by Kanye West and then Kyrie Irvin, um, people all across the spectrum have spoken out against them and said, this is wrong. And Kanye West lost a billion dollar contract, I guess, with Adidas and Nike said that they're not going to put out any shoes for Kyrie Irving. So there there are consequences and people are speaking out. Uh, and yet you've got Kyrie Irving, you know, not denouncing this Holocaust denial film. So uh, what do you do? I mean, what what should be the response? I think uh, the re a strong response to individuals who have these extremely large platforms uh, is definitely required. It's a, a matter of education to be sure, but when someone repeats extremism, anti-Semitism, or another form of bigotry, 
uh, they have to take responsibility for their words. They have to be held uh, accountable. And I think that's what increasingly we're seeing here is that individuals, again, who have millions upon millions uh, of followers really have a responsibility to use their voices for good, for unity, to promote uh, uh, strong values, uh, not yeah. to divide us, not to send messages of fear and intimidation and hate. So Lonnie, let me ask you the flip side to that coin and something that, uh, that I've talked with my colleagues about in reporting these news stories, especially about celebrities and people with huge platforms, and, and the rabbi in the previous segment talked about what a difference, what a change maker that is. How mm -hmm. does a news organization report on these facts, especially television with visuals involved, without amplifying and repeating mm -hmm. and showing mm -hmm. the kinds of things that are shown, which just show the message? and which may be horrifying to good people, but maybe something else to someone who's not so good. How do we do that? I think we can look to do that by promoting uh, a message confronting anti-Semitism and uh, bias in our society proactively, show and demonstrate the efforts by so many in our community to be upstanders. Uh, look, we had the incidents that uh, were just spoken about in Weston. They may have been conducted by one person. They may have been conducted by a group of people. Uh, law enforcement will give us information on that. Uh, but uh, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of other people throughout our community uh, who can use their voices, whose voices can be uh, uh, highlighted. Uh, and, and so when we look to see, when we look in the aftermath of such incidents, as important as it is to definitely uh, highlight what has happened, it's vital to also demonstrate uh, and, and show the community what can happen when we stand together, when we say bigotry is not who we are. Right. When we say that an anti, if, if, there's an anti-Semitic incident, it's considered to be anti-me. If there's a homophobic incident, it's considered anti-me. If it's a racist incident, it's considered anti-me. The people who are saying that, who are demonstrating those values, are the more important voices than those who are expressing uh, just horrific discrimination and bigotry. Well, we appreciate the work that you and the ADL do. It is tireless, it is important, and bringing this to light, and as Glenna says, we need to be mindful of not helping to spread the message of hate, and we certainly try not to. Yeah, thank you. All right, we thank you, Lonnie Wilkes, and we thank you for being here with us online 24-7. Remember, you're always there, and uh, we appreciate your time this morning. And if you haven't already, get out there and vote. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.